This morning we're going to be in Genesis, but we're going to be in, the, <clears throat> in a few different chapters. You're welcome to turn to Genesis chapter 6. That's ultimately where we'll be uh, here in a few moments. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we really talked out of an Ecclesiastes page, uh, uh, passage I should say. Uh, in one of the Ecclesiastes there was this, this uh, section of, of Scripture that talks about there was a time to do everything. And in that, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how you know things like average life expectancies and those sorts of things. And I know that in some ways when you talk about those, it was a little bit depressing because we talked about like how, you know, life may not be quite as long as we thought. So I figured this morning, let's swing the pendulum to the other end of the spectrum. When you think about your maybe family members and people you've known, when you think about the oldest person that you've known to be like living, doing, going, all those sorts of things, what are people that you know out there that have been in your life that like live the longest in your family? I'll set the bar first and then we'll see who can go past mine. Miss Stephanie's grandfather, all right, he was a short Scottish dude about this tall, all right, he is an absolute pistol. In his late 80s and early 90s, he would be driving a motorhome through town yelling at all the old people to get out of the way, all right. I'll start the bar at him. He lived to be a hundred and a half, all right, that's how old he was, a hundred and a half. Somebody else, who do you know that's lived longer than a hundred and a half? Oh my gracious. <laughs> Not yet. All right, so carry on. My grandmother, 103 and a half. 103 and a half. There you go. All right, we're trying to outdo the number. There we go. Trying to outdo the number. Yes, ma'am. Max mom was 104, all right? Uh, there's a gentleman who, has, who was a, uh, a part of this church for years, uh, now attends church with his family down in Waverly by the name of Russ Harris. He's either 102 or 103, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, still going to church and doing things. Uh, I went to dinner with him one time, and, uh, and I'll say, I've been here nine years, so you can do the math. Uh, I went to dinner with him one time, and uh, at one point in that dinner trip, he drove us there and back. He was driving the speed that would be equivalent to his age. Just saying. <laughs> Uh, the man could still move, and, uh, and he was doing quite fine. Let me tell you what, I remember leaning over. We were passing people coming back from Clarksville on the regular, and I thought, huh. I look over, and I was like, yep, we're going that fast. That's what we're doing. All right. Anybody else? 104 is the oldest that I have so far. We may have heard others, and sometimes you see those things online that, that say, like, someone lived to be 110, 115, 100 and whatever. I think I even saw someone not long ago that, that had claimed to be in the 130 range. But quite honestly, when we see something that's online, I mean, it's not exactly like you can trust it, right? I mean, like, it's getting worse and worse. People write all sorts of articles. They're just completely falsified. And so when you start looking back at, like, how long do people live? Now, there's a little bit of a different perspective when you get back into into the Genesis story. As a matter of fact, anybody remember who's the oldest in the Old Testament? A little bit of, of uh, we even sometimes this outlives the Bible, all right? What's the name of that person? Starts with an M. There we go. And how old? Do you remember? 969 is what we read in Genesis 5.27, all right? So there's a couple of other places that you'll read about them in age that may give a little bit of difference, but still, in the 900s, I mean, like, that's such a wild scenario. And my question for you is this, like, why don't people live that long anymore? 
It's a really good question. It's one to like think about. You may even think about this from a biblical perspective, which we'll get in here in just a moment. But if you start looking at like the, the human body, like why don't people live longer than we do? What keeps us from living longer? Why do our bodies uh, tend to age and in our time be a bit limited? I mean, even with the, with the great medicinal uh, uh, improvements that we've made, our body life expectancy hasn't made that big of a jump as you might expect from the amount of things that we have now that help your body. You know I mean? To help you recover from things and uh, the surgeries that we can have the, are still, are, are, we just haven't seen this, this great surge. And so, like, what is it? One of the things I, I read months ago now, and I thought was very intriguing, uh, one of these guys was doing research from like a health standpoint, and he said, I know this is going to seem very, very odd to you, but ultimately oxygen is what is killing you. And I thought, like, that makes no sense because, like, you have to have oxygen to be able to live. And that was his point. He said oxygen is a, is a bittersweet gas that is required by our bodies to be able to be transported. And, and it is something that is required for our muscles. It's required for our brain. All those sorts of things. Like, it's required. However, it is also destructive to all of those things. If many of you know that when you breathe in oxygen right now, you're not actually breathing in 100% oxygen. Nowhere near it, as a matter of fact. You start going into a, a, a hospital and you'll see how when they're giving people oxygen, they're not blowing 100% oxygen straight down someone's nostrils because if they do for very much time at all, you start causing immense damage. So this gentleman's talking about how the, the oxygen that you're taking in can be absolutely like devastating to you. As a matter of fact, when you give too much oxygen, adverse things start taking place. If we were to give you 100% oxygen right now, your lungs would immediately begin to suffer. As a matter of fact, you'd have pulmonary edema, which is when you start having a, a fluid buildup because you're lungs can't handle it. You continue to give over time too much oxygen. I even consulted with one of our nurses that's been in the, the medical field for years and years this morning just to hear about her experience. And when I asked, what does too much oxygen do to a person immediately without hesitating causes blindness? Like it will make you blind by having too much oxygen, especially in infants, but even in your older years, like too much oxygen can be bad for you. And so it was interesting to me to hear this person talk about how, you know, your organs ultimately over time, it is oxygen that does that is a destructive force within them, even though it's also what is necessary in your blood to be able to carry. It's such an interesting and fascinating perspective to say that it is both good for you and also over time is what's destructive. You read about other people and you say, well, you know, what are the, the other things that may be keeping us from living longer? And it may not be just oxygen. Some people say that, you know, the harmful effects of the sun is what's been making a difference in our lives. Like it is the different types of UV rays. And if you study much about UV rays, you know, there's different types of UV rays. Some of them don't make it through the ozone. By the way, if you're a child of the 90s, aren't you glad to still be alive today? If you grew up in the 80s and the 90s, you're glad to be here because we were going to die before now from the ozone being depleted. Do you remember? And it was because of all you women in the 80s with your hairspray cans. <laughs> all right? Like, we're just grateful that we all survived the great hairspray of the 80s, right? But when you think about what the ozone is, that miraculously holes got bigger and smaller and we apparently had no effect over them now, now that we study them today. But years ago, we thought that we were going to kill ourselves because we were depleting the ozone. Regardless of, of that learning and, and, and being wrong and learning more and those sorts of things, we still recognize that the ozone that is around this earth protects us. There are certain UV rays that don't make it through. There are certain UV rays that do. And it's a bit of an irony, just like oxygen, because your body needs the sunlight and some of that radiation and rays that make it through because that's what produces vitamin D in your body. And yet if you have too much, it's also one of the greatest and, and largest leading skin cancer causes 
is the, the UV rays that make it through. It's like, so is it, is it the, the, the amount of sun that's coming through? And so you have people asking, like, what's making us live longer? And then some of the people say, you know, it's really, let's go back to that sun conversation. Some people say, you know, it really is. <clears throat> The reason we've lived longer years and years ago was because that was a pre-flood existence. Now, think with me for a moment. Let's go back to the story of Genesis, and we're going to read not necessarily all of the details, folks. This is three chapters long. Don't expect us to be able to break down all three chapters this morning, okay? But as you talk about rain, the Bible tells about this flood experience like it was the first time that rain ever fell from the heavens. Like people were not accustomed to rain falling from the skies. This was not normal that water pushed up through springs in the ground. And that there was a different existence before then in the way that the earth had been created, the way that earth was, was operating. So when you read biblically about this story, like these people were not only knowing that, that waters were going to rise and, and, and Noah was talking about a flood, it was going to happen in a manner that had never happened before. And so the question is, if people live for years and years and years, hundreds of years beyond us today, could it not have been, I mean, where did all that water come from if it fell? It had to be around us, right? Not just around us as an individual, but around the world. And if there was another layer of, of water in the air, is that what was preventing the UV rays and some of the, the bad UV that we know coming through and creating a much more hospitable environment on this earth for people in general, and thus they were able to live longer? It's an interesting like, thought problem. What caused these things? And some of us, when we, when we read about this and we talk about things like, you know, a pre-flood or, or, or like what the world might have been like in that, and, and we're, we're having this conversation in the space of, of how long we live. Now, let's bring in the biblical stance of this. Like, does anybody remember, have you ever been taught from the Bible how long people would live as a maximum for their life? You ever heard a number? Interesting. A lot of circles I've been in before. People have a number that they associate with a biblical passage that says we will only live for how many years? Anybody remember how many years that is? 120. All right. Genesis, go back with me for a moment. Now, I will not have the things up on the screen this morning because we're going to be reading together. Please follow along with me. Genesis chapter 5, okay? I want to go back and read. It may be chapter 6. Let me check that because sometimes in my notes I typo things and I have a feeling I've done that. That's what I thought. It's Genesis chapter 6. I, I, I typoed that in my notes. When I looked down, I was like, this is not correct. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. We'll be in chapter 6, verse 11 is what we'll read a good bit of here in a moment. But in verse 1, we read this. When human beings began to increase in numbers on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married them, uh, any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be numbered 120 years. I, I've been taught growing up that people don't live past 120 because of this biblical principle that was set up. That like at this point, God decided people will no longer live past 120. And I read this passage this morning, not to tell you this morning that you won't live past 120 because of this passage. As a matter of fact, I read it to say like, let's look at this passage a little bit more within its context of like where it's sitting, right? You're, you're looking at a story where God had thought about creation, where God had thought about like what he had done. I mean, go back in the story here for a little bit. Go back to the very beginning. God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden. And in some amount of time, we don't know, days, months, years, decades, whatever, okay? In some amount of time, Adam and Eve make the, the poor decision 
to not trust God, to take things into their own hands, to try to become like God as we read in the Bible, to, 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 to be tempted by the serpent and to give in to that, to that temptation of evil. And so then biting into the tree of the knowledge, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they begin this separation. And when that happens, they're cast out of the garden and they are to, t- to till the soil and to bring about children and all those sorts of things begin to happen. I mean, look at God's very first experience with giving humanity free will. What happens? They don't handle it very well. They immediately cause separation between themselves. And then if you were here on this past Wednesday night during our Wednesday night Bible study, which two individuals do we talk about? Who was here on Wednesday and which two people do we talk about? Cain and Abel. Folks, you're talking about generation two here, okay? If you know the story, one brother kills the other one really over jealousy. One gets jealous enough of how God responds to an offering and kills the other one in the fields over it. You look at what God has created, and I mean, imagine this for just a moment, and I know to try and imagine things from God's perspective is to put such human experience and human emotion into God's perspective, and there's some truth in that. We can't swing that pendulum all the way, but there's some truth in that. So imagine what it's like to be God for a moment, and you create humanity, and you say, but I want to give you free will so that you can choose me, and then as, as I give you free will, ultimately what he created chose other than him. And then when he says that you, know, you must be punished for this, like learn your lesson and don't do this. Like I want to be in relationship with you. And so because you, you, know, you took this for granted, I'm going to take this away from you. And, and then he sends them out to work the soul, have children as we read again. And then the very next generation that comes along, one brother kills the other one. And folks, this is kind of the picture of what happens in creation for a while. When you read... God saying these words. When you read this in Genesis chapter 6 about him looking down at creation and numbering them 120 years, there are some who attribute that to be a a forever. That from that point forward, no one will live past 120 years. However, there are others who have the opinion God wasn't talking about no one ever living past 120 from that point forward. Could it have been that he looked at them and said, their time. Those who are here on this earth right now will not live more than 120 years because I have a plan. I mean, look where this story fits. Folks, you can look down at these notes. You can look in your Bible. What is God about to do? You understand? Like, God's not happy with what He's seeing. And it's, it's this very scary dynamic of who God is that He could look down at His creation and be so frustrated with them that He wanted to start over. I know as parents, some of you may have had that temptation. There's some humor there. I appreciate you laughing. Okay. Some of you are like, I will never laugh at that joke. But some of you have been like, that's it. We should just start over. Okay. God looks down to creation and says, I need to just start over. I know that's a harsh, harsh reality in, in, a, in a difficult dynamic of who God is to consider. But whether God is saying about the individuals living on this earth 120 years, or whether God is talking about those who would come after and forever... <laughs> You're reading the segment of time where God has created and He's seen what people have been doing and He's incredibly frustrated by them. He sees His humanity and He sees wickedness. He sees them turning away from who He wants them to be. And I want you to see Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, because as He's looking around, this is where the story takes a little bit of a turn. Okay? says, this is the account of Noah and his family. You've been reading all these stories of the things not going well and people making bad decisions ultimately since the fall in the garden. And then you read this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. 
I know sometimes in places like uh, children's ministries areas, uh, sometimes even in artwork, sometimes even in playgrounds, uh, we have depicted some sort of, of ark. Uh, it's a fun thing to draw a picture of. It's a fun thing for kids to be able to see, to imagine all the animals together and all that. And, and I don't want to. I don't want in any way diminish what we've done. As a matter of fact, if you check out the TV screens on your way out here in a little bit, there's a pretty funny uh, picture that'll be there, and it's all the animals on the ark looking down, uh, and there's two skunks in a lifeboat floating off to the side, and the skunks are looking up saying, it slipped, I'm sorry. <laughs> so there's fun to be had in those stories, okay? There's fun to be had. But I wonder sometimes in the, in the process of talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and some of the other like major patriarchs of the faith, folks, imagine with me for just a moment the world's existence when God looks down and says, as if I regret having made them, I want to start over. Like, he looks down and then says, but, but Noah, I will build and rebuild humanity from this man and his family. Like, most everyone else we read about has an encounter with God, and then they begin doing what God has asked them to do. Most all of them. I mean, think with me here. You're looking at a lot of them that may have been seen as righteous, but there are story after story of not... Not people who were found righteous and blameless. Most people in the Old Testament we find especially were found not righteous and not blameless, and yet God calls them and uses them. But Noah is one that he was found righteous and blameless. As a matter of fact, like when you talk about him being righteous, what does it describe about what he's doing? When it says like the action of what he's doing, when God looks down at him, he sees something about Noah, and it says that he was blameless among the people of his time, and he did what? And he walked faithfully with God. Does that seem... How many of you are plugging together how reminiscent that seems of what God wanted to do with Adam and Eve? Remember what they used to do in the cool of the evening? They would walk together. It's what we read. They would walk together. There's almost this, this starting to put together that God created us literally or proverbially, both maybe, to walk with Him, to spend time with Him, to, to exist with Him, and that Noah was the one who got it. Like Noah was the one who was still doing it. It's like you're, you're looking back at this, at this story of, like, of, of, of what life was like when the world was falling away, and yet Noah was seen as the man who was walking faithfully with God. What a pivotal, pivotal person. I want to read from Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read down through verse 22. This is the story of him being called in, in some of the, the general nature. There's a lot of other details that come in later chapters, but this is our focal point for the morning. I'll even pause. It's one of the reasons that I didn't put it up on the screen this morning, because I didn't want to uh, speak for a while and leave you standing for forever and those sorts of things. And so Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, let's read together. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. To, to build it, the ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. I need to tell you this morning that uh, that transfers into uh, the North American way of, of measuring things, 440 feet long, 72 feet wide, and 43 feet tall. 
By the way, this room is, I believe, just under 20 feet to the ceiling. So from a perspective of being inside this, you're talking over twice as tall as this is. I also recognize that some of you have probably been to the Ark Encounter experience in Kentucky and have a very good visualization of what this looks like after having a chance to tour it. I've not been there yet, but I'm getting thumbs up from folks. It's quality. I'd like to go see that as well. I've just not taken the time to do it. Make a roof for it, it continues, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Doesn't take long to add this together, folks. So how many levels to this boat are there? Three. Maybe four if you conclude the bottom of the hole. But upper, lower, and middle decks. And you would imagine there'd be space underneath the lower deck. But let's just say that there's three of them. This doesn't take very much if you were to use the outside dimensions of the boat. And I recognize that this is going to be a little bit off because of the curvature of the boat. This is not a square, okay, or a rectangle as it might be. But if you simply do 440 feet times 72 feet wide, you get 31,680 square feet per floor. 95,000 square feet of boat. Like, I understand, you're losing a little bit in the cone, okay? So like, let's just knock it off and say that this thing's only 80,000 square feet. You understand? Not many of us have been in buildings that we can look around in that are 80,000 square feet. You may have been in one, but they're separated by walls. Most of our homes are anywhere from 1,000 to maybe 3,000 square feet. Folks, start thinking about the size and the magnitude of what's being asked to be built here. I think putting it in modern day terms is a very, very good thing to picture. It continues on in verse 17 and says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens and every creature that has a breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Two of every kind of bird, two of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. When I was about three years old, my uh, parents decided to move from their small house down in the, the uh, Hueytown area. If you're a, a NASCAR fan from years ago, <clears throat> I grew up around the Bonnets, the Allisons, the, all of the, the Hueytown gang, as you may have read about, okay? Uh, my dad grew up, we, we actually, as a child, I was taken to hunt on Bobby Allison's place, which is right behind our house. And so all that NASCAR world is where my parents grew up. My dad worked for a place called Dixie Datsun, which later became Neil Bonnet Honda. So that's kind of the background we came from. When my parents decided to move, they moved up to a small town called Hayden, Alabama. They wanted to build a house and they, uh, they got, got a little bit of ridicule from the family because they were moving so far away. It was after all going to be a 45 minute drive to see each other. All right. But that to them in those days was, was far away. So my parents began to build a house and I was about three years old when it began. And one of my first memories ever in life, I have two of them, one of my grandparents' house flooding when I was about the same age. The other was of my parents building a home together. We, we lived in a small camper, 100 square feet or so, 120 square feet. It was a small single axle camper while they were building the house right beside it. Um, I remember seeing, and the thing I remember the most is I remember seeing the log truck show up. Uh, my parents today live in the same log house that my dad built in 1984. Um, and so when, you, when I remember as a child seeing this, just being mesmerized, you can be, imagine being a three-year-old, seeing a, an 18-wheeler style truck pulling up this long driveway, coming across a neighbor's pasture in order to get to where our build site was. I just remember seeing all this take place. And I think it was because of that 
that I had a, this kind of like, I don't know, dream or desire in my heart that I would build my own house one day. That was always something, I guess because I saw my dad do it. And I remember like my grandfather took an extensive amount of time off of work. Some uncles were retired and came and helped. And like it was a family event building the house that I ended up growing up in, the house that my parents still live in. And for years I thought like one day I'd like to build my own house. And as has happened other times in my life that are not uh, able to be told this morning, I, I somewhat gave up on that goal, not necessarily with great pain and, and like, you know, oh, I'll never do it, but just like, okay, probably that time in life has passed me and <clears throat> I'll likely not be able to build my own house. A couple of years ago, however, uh, things changed, as many of you know about housing markets and those sorts of things. And so Stephanie and I decided um, we would like to, to move uh, this time. And in this move, we'd like to build our house. And, uh, and I say in, in the we sense, we all work together at some levels. But ultimately, for a while, I, I unloaded a track hoe, if you know what that is. That's the, the big diggy thing with the big wheels or big tracks underneath it, okay, with the big scoop, all right? Unloaded a track hoe at my house, having never operated one, but dug a basement with one. Didn't take me long to figure it out, by the way. I got jarred around. If you've ever driven one of those things, I got my teeth rattled a few times, all right? But learned how to do that. Started that in June 1, and for the next nine months, it, my alarms went off in the dark, I would wake up and get out of the house we were living in down the hill, drive up the hill and work on the house up there. I paid someone to do the concrete work. I uh, had a friend come help me dig the footers. We poured our own footers, had someone do the block work, I had someone wire the house, uh, had someone run the HVAC. But beyond that, oh, and had someone finish the sheetrock because I don't do sheetrock. But past that, framing, roofing, plumbing, flooring, trim, the whole nine yards, I enjoyed that immensely. But I recognize in that especially nine months, because we started in June, and then in February we were able to move in of 2023, and then somewhere in May we got to where we consider it done. Now let's all be honest, is your house done right now? Will it ever be done? But it was livable to the point that we're at small projects that are left, and yes, I still have cabinets to put in or shelving to put in a laundry room, I get it, okay. <laughs> but we were there, you know, like we, we got to that. But for nine months, it was almost a maniacal pace almost maniacal. Um, just every moment that was spare, every moment that wasn't immersed in professional was waking up early, working till eight or nine o'clock in the morning, going to the office, handling all office things into the afternoon, going back up in the evenings, working with shop lights and generators into the night, and then waking up the next morning. It was like that for nine months, and I enjoyed a whole lot of it. But if you've ever had a segment of time where you recognize that doing that was exterior to all of your other responsibilities, then you probably in your life have an experience that you look back at to recognize Noah's existence. The difference is, I look back at my life for nine months thinking about how maniacal that was, and if you start researching how long it takes Noah to build 80,000 square feet of boat, folks, no power saws, no DeWalt tools, no generators, you know? 80,000 square feet of boat, and you also have to recognize because he starts building an ark for God does not mean his familial or professional responsibilities are gone. This is an addition to. Like you start reading this story and there's a part of it's like, Noah's one that starts calling us into a bit of, really a bit of challenge. Like Noah lived in such a way that before God ever asked him to do this, he lived in such a way that he was seen as righteous in the midst of a land that was not. And then when God called him to do this, he just adds in addition to the other things. Not to say he didn't move around some responsibilities or learn how to operate life differently, but folks, 
<clears throat> when you start studying how long it takes to do this, and, and the trouble is there's not one verse in the Bible that says, and Noah worked for so many years on this boat. The problem is you have his sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and, and Jepheth, that were born, and, and it'll say that this one was born in this time frame, and then this one was born so many years before the flood, or this one was born, at, and then this one had children you know, the year after the flood, and you start putting these things together, and, and most people estimate that this boat took to the maximum side between 50 and 75 years, not months. Okay, you imagine taking on a project and looking over at my buddy Steve Grubb right now. We're we're tag teaming the project over at the campground, building a dorm. All of a sudden, our dorm project does not seem that long. You know what I mean? Like just a little bit of perspective here, you know. But the but having worked on this for that much time, folks, it may be that one of the greatest patriarchs in the Old Testament is one that we have boiled down to being someone who just put some animals on a boat and survived a rain. You know. But think with me for just a moment about what you learn from this man, especially what we learn from him in the things that would apply very, very well into our world. Number one, have you ever, have you ever felt like being a Christian, especially not just, not just saying like that I know Jesus or I ask Jesus to be in my heart or whatever, very elementary and beginning understanding. But think about this for a moment. If you have pursued righteousness, what is that like in a culture who is not pursuing righteousness? What's it like to be the one who wants to be more Christ-like and more holy when all of your... Anybody else have hooligan friends? Okay? When all of your hooligan friends are not so much worried about it. Okay? How does that make a person... If you've ever felt lonely in your pursuit of holiness, I need you to go back and look at the story of Noah. Who did Noah have? You don't get a picture of Noah had his buddies and they were all trying to be more Christ-like. You get a picture of Noah was by himself. Other than him and his family, that's it. God looked around the entire earth and said, I'm starting over except for this, this little circle right here. I'm keeping them. Everybody else, done with them. They're all falling into, into the ridiculousness of, of evil and sin and violence, right? But these. And so one of the things I need you to hear this morning is in pursuit of being Christ-likeness in a world that is less and less worried with being Christ-like, you need to make peace with being lonely on this earth. Maybe for the, for the illustrative purposes, maybe this is your Noah's family. Maybe your Noah's family is your small group, and maybe your Noah's family is a small group of people that you meet with and that you have regular conversations about the Bible, about growing closer. But you need to know that just because you want to become Christ-like and you want to work into becoming a more Christ-like person, it does not mean that you gain friends and influence people. You know what I mean? It does not mean of, of a great sense of popularity. As a matter of fact, as we look back in the Bible, especially for Noah, from learning from him, has to be a very isolative existence. Another thing that you, that you read about this individual is, and I think we've sold ourselves a bit short, sometimes when we talk about being a, a Christian, it is all you have to do is accept Jesus into your heart. I've said those words before. That's a very incomplete statement. Amen? That's not all you have to do. As a matter of fact, like, let's look back at this for just a moment and say, like, no. When Noah was found to be righteous, God looked at him and said, this is a man that we can trust. This man we will put responsibility on his shoulders and him and his family. It's not just him by himself, but him and us will put responsibility on their shoulders. And then we're going to ask him to build a boat that's going to take him 50 years to build to save all of humanity. Like, folks, there's a very real 
understanding that to be Christ-like, to be righteous, and to pursue being the person God's called you to be, you need to make peace with. You may be lonely from time to time, even though God is always with you. Still feels lonely on this earth. And it means to work and to do. You know? Not to exist and watch things go by. Not, not to just be there, but to be active and to, and to, be, to be purposeful in things. Folks, this, this guy's story is one that when we look back at, at the different people in the Bible, like I'm afraid we may have unintentionally looked over one of the most sound and solid individuals in the Old Testament to look back at. I mean, this, the thing that this sends us further into our life with is this. Maybe this is our, our great challenge and our great encouragement for the morning. Though pursuing and being righteous may lead you to places where you feel overworked and where you feel a bit lonely in your pursuit of Christ compared to everyone else around you on this earth, it is the way that God paved survival for humanity. And it, and it may be that you're dealing with the feelings of loneliness or the feelings of being on an island or the feelings of, of it being work and struggle and working through that. It may be that your working and struggle is paving the way for people behind you to know the, the love of an everlasting Father. And then all of a sudden, the lonely, the taxing, and the struggle are worth it. Amen? Not that it's always that way, but it becomes worth it when we, when we have those feelings. So this morning we leave with a much better perspective of Noah. God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for an individual who lived before us and one that we can in some ways imagine what life would have been like. And so as we do so, God, encourage us this morning in our pursuit for being righteous. If we've ever found ourselves feeling a bit lonely, would you remind us, God, that sometimes pursuing righteous separates us from other people and sometimes that's okay. But God, also would you remind us that it is because of our pursuit of righteousness. God, it is because of that oftentimes you use us. <clears throat> you use us to be able to make a difference in the lives of other people. Those that we know and those who come behind us that we may not know. God, we love you today. We thank you for stories like this. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed. Amen.